Hello and welcome to the Hooked on History podcast. This is the fifth episode on our series on the history of UK drug use. In this episode, we will be examining the history of the addict and addiction as a diagnosis. I hope you enjoy the show. So, we finally made it to what is seen as the drug, the big bad, the monster at the end of the illegal drug daisy chain, heroin. However, if you picked up a newspaper in 1955, you might be surprised by how it was described. In the Daily Express, it was touted as, quote, the doctor's most effective painkiller, end quote. The Daily Mirror celebrated it with the line, quote, the most learned physicians from the most famous centers of medicine commend the use of heroin with unanimity rare for the profession, end quote. Less to say, 1955 was an unusually complimentary year for heroin. Now, behind all the tabloids' glowing reviews of the drug was some good old-fashioned government bashing. The UK government, by request of the UN, decided to ban heroin in order to fall in line with the international community. Britain had a, uh, a unique drug policy for the time. Anyone could register as an addict and get a prescription for the drug. These uh, maintenance doses, as they are known, were meant to help the addict continue to lead a relatively normal life. This proposed ban threatened medical control over the drug, and doctors launched a very public campaign against it. Strong anti-prohibitionist morals were expressed by the press and doctors alike. The fact that the UK only had 54 known heroin addicts, or registered, compared to the 100,000 heroin addicts that supposedly existed in the USA, made the move toward criminalization look ridiculous. In the end, the medical community would win out and the government was dealt an embarrassing blow. But the scale of the doctor's opposition went beyond concern for heroin's users. There was a principle at stake here. Should the government be allowed to dictate to the medical profession which drugs they can and cannot prescribe? Similarly, the press focused on the public being denied a painkiller. Despite the anti-prohibitionist morals, there was no love lost for heroin's addicts. One Daily Mirror article asked, quote, Who should be allowed to suffer? The drug addict who ruins his health with dope? or the patient who is in terrible pain through no fault of his own? The answer seems obvious, yet the government has decided it is the innocent patient who must suffer." End quote. Many members of the medical profession did not hold addicts in high esteem either. Dr. J. Hobson told the Society for the Study of Addiction that most heroin addicts were quote, instrumentalists in jazz bands, which um, had a certain racial connotation, or psychopathic. Psychiatrist Alice Stungo announced to the society, quote, cases of addiction arise almost exclusively from the illegitimate use of heroin by sensation-seeking psychopaths, hysterics in search of happiness or solace, and other unstable characters for strictly non-therapeutic purposes. Now, when I first read these articles, I was 
but honestly quite shocked at how dismissive and insulting speakers at the Society for the Study of Addiction were being about their subjects. I mean, our modern pop psychiatry idea of a psychopath paints the idea of a unredeemable, immoral person incapable of empathy, a la Patrick Bateman. I um, ended up chasing down a 1956 psychiatric textbook to make sense of the diagnosis. The textbook would describe psychopaths as the misfits of society, the despair of parents, doctors, ministers. Symptoms included being excitable, impulsive, eccentric, liars and swindlers, antisocial and quarrelsome. Along with drug addicts, its ranks boasted homosexuals, which um, personally raised an eyebrow, and the mothers of illegitimate children, which, um, well, raised the other. Unsurprisingly, there was no obvious cause or cure of psychopathy. So, because I'm an unfocused researcher, I, uh, I tried to find out what was going on with this diagnosis. How did unmarried mothers become psychopaths? And I realized that it may seem we're straying a little far from the subject of drug addiction, but bear with me and I promise this will come full circle. Well, the thinking with unmarried mothers was, a child needs a loving environment, right? Which a mentally healthy mother should wish to provide. A single mother cannot provide this because she has to work. So, a mentally healthy mother is one that secures a husband before having a child. Ipso facto, an unmarried mother can't be very healthy now, can she? Throw in a bit of psychoanalytical unconscious theory, and you have women who are having children not out of sexual accidents, but due to an unconscious psychopathic desire to have an illegitimate child. Now, these sorts of psychiatric truisms would cause a host of contemporary thinkers to accuse psychiatry of upholding dominant morals in the guise of science. Where if someone strayed from social norms, say by having sex with someone of the same gender, the medical profession diagnosed them as mentally ill and offered a reason for their incarceration. In this episode, we will use the history of the addict to investigate how a medical school became so morally dependent, the social developments that led to addicts being seen as a type, the psychopath, and the substantial role eugenic theory had in all of this. We'll also explore the origins of the liberal British system, which supplied addicts with a controlled amount of their habit, and why exactly Britain's system of control was so divergent from the policy of criminalization that existed in the USA.
Charles Darwin's 19th century theory of evolution is perhaps the crowning achievement of an epoch which strove to describe the world around them in scientific terms. The origins of the grass under your feet, the rats in your cellar, and even you and your species could now be biologically explained. Deviations and variants were also biologically accounted for. However, the origin of species was not the only thing to be expressed through this biological lens. The latter half of the 19th century saw this lens turned on society itself, which was militantly and dogmatically medicalized. It was this push that would birth the addict, and the homosexual too for that matter. Now, um, I'm not some nut who thinks same-sex attraction, partnership, and love is a recent invention. That's uh, clearly not true. However, in the period before the 19th century, gay sex would only be seen as a, an act, sodomy. While this act was treated as criminal, or a sin against nature, it didn't define you as a type of person. The concept of categorizing people by their sexuality, at least in our modern box-on-the-census-form way, didn't exist. Just as earlier racial scientists focused on one seemingly important aspect of a person, the color of their skin, to create a new biological category, Victorian quote-unquote scientific study developed the notion that homosexuality was the characteristic of a type of human. Here's how philosopher Michel Foucault would describe this development. As defined by the ancient civil or canonical codes, sodomy was a category of forbidden acts. Their perpetrator was nothing more than the juridical subject of them. The 19th century homosexual became a personage, a past, a case history, and a childhood, in addition to being a type of life, a life form, and a morphology, with an indiscreet anatomy, and possibly a mysterious physiology. Nothing that went into his total composition was unaffected by his sexuality. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration. The homosexual was now a species. The origins of the addict, at least in medical terms, are very similar. In fact, you could take Foucault's famous paragraph, substitute sodomy for opium eating and homosexual for addict, and it would give you a rough impression of what took place. In the 19th century, opium eating was fairly commonplace in Britain. Drug habits were seen as a vice, a personal failing. While perhaps portrayed as weak-willed and sinful, they were otherwise normal people. However, under the late 19th century thrust towards providing scientific explanations for things traditionally seen as originating in social issues, addiction became classified as a disease. With talk of predispositions and hereditary, the disease gained an exclusive quality. Rather than an affliction that could affect anyone, it was the defective who became stricken by the disease of addiction. However, despite the new medical diagnosis which covered the condition, the theory surrounding the new disease still kept a moral dimension. Addiction would be described as a disease of the will. The addict's moral weakness was imperative to the causation of this disease. Historian Virginia Berridge described the medicalization of addiction as, quote, moral judgments, 
given some form of spurious scientific respectability simply by being transferred to a medical context. End quote. This scientific edifice erected over traditional moral judgments can be seen in the feminization of addiction. Initially, the disease model of addiction was largely applied to morphine addiction, a small middle and upper class drug epidemic caused by Dr. Zeal for the new drug, morphine, and a new tool, the hypodermic needle. This addict population was associated with women, perhaps because hypodermic morphine was used to treat quote-unquote female complaints, which was uh, period pains, etc., and conditions which were thought to originate in hysteria. Um, now, the fact that they were referred to as female complaints should probably tell you something about the primary gender of doctors in this period. But I digress. Popular and traditional tropes surrounding female weakness, like deceitfulness and pleasure-seeking, were used to explain their propensity for the drug. As the medical journal The Lancet explained, Given a member of the weaker sex of the upper or middle class, enfeebled by a long illness, but selfishly fond of pleasure, and determined to purchase it at any cost, there are the syringe, the bottle, and the measure invitingly to hand, and all so small as to be easily concealed, even from the eye of prying domestics. Now, of course, describing the disease of morphine addiction as the result of moral weakness rather than overzealously prescribing doctors was also convenient for the profession. As historian Susan Ziegler would point out, quote, If addiction were vices, then physicians were merely abetting a sin. But if addiction were diseases, with shameless lying as a symptom, then physicians were desperately needed, not merely to cure them, but to restore their patients' and moral integrity too. End quote. Similar to how doctors identified some innate quality of women as the reason for their drug use, doctors who saw mainly middle-class addicts thought there must be something special about this group of people. Some took a materialist approach to explain this novelty. Sir Ronald Armstrong Jones of Claiborne Asylum explained that most morphine addicts were upper or middle class because, quote, There is generally a physical difference between the brains of those in the upper and the lower class. Not only is the brain weight heavier, but there is also, in the upper class, an added complexity of convolutional pattern. And these differences, of necessity, carry with them psychological and physiological concomitants, which mean a higher sensitiveness and a greater vulnerability. Another excuse for middle-class addiction was neurasthenia. The thinking here was that the quote-unquote brain workers of society might overtax their nervous system trying to keep pace with industrial society. In trying to shore up their mental capacities, they might turn to drugs and alcohol. The working class, on the other hand, would enjoy less forgiving explanations for their drug use. Degeneration was a sort of dark mirror of natural selection. The idea was that those who violated natural law, what we'd today call conventional morals, would pass on this defect to their children, and then grandchildren, and so on, eventually leading to madness. 
This was all hedged in the belief that the mind, um, our intelligence and ability to control our primitive instincts, is the most recently evolved trait and therefore the most susceptible to degeneration. As a result, psychological conditions were the ideology's focus. Psychiatry would find degeneration theories extremely useful and applied it to all the pathologies of modern life. Working class modes of addiction like alcoholism, prostitution, delinquency, suicide, epilepsy, hysteria, and the poor physical state of the malnourished lower classes. The ideology was also significant culturally. French author Emile Zola wrote a 20-book series depicting how a mentally defective ancestor had caused madness, murder, tics, alcoholism, and prostitution in her progeny. In the introduction to these books, Zola stated he wished to demonstrate that hereditary, like gravity, has its laws. Degeneration themes also became popular in British sensationalist fiction. However, when Henrik Ibsen's 1882 play, Ghosts, portrayed immorality and degeneration amongst a rich and respectable family, it was less well received. The Daily Telegraph described the play as a disgusting representation of an open drain, of a loathsome sore unbandaged, of a dirty act done publicly, gross and almost putrid in decorum, literary carrion. In general, Ideas of degeneration were more acceptable when applied to the poor or mentally ill. Fears over degeneration of the British race escalated as the 19th became the 20th century, especially after Britain attempted to recruit its urban poor in order to fight in the Boer War, and found many of them unfit for combat. Ideas around public health arose. No longer did the doctors simply have to think about what was good for the patient. Now they also had to worry about what was good for the nation. Tropes surrounding women started to change as well. The traditional view of a weaker sex that needed to be protected from moral vices now share the spotlight with conflicting tropes of individual women as dangerous vectors to communities, the spreaders of venereal disease and immorality. In this environment, eugenic theory rose in popularity. Now, eugenics is sort of um, a sort of proactive update on degeneration, uh, combining it with natural selection. The idea was to actively prevent a race from degenerating by controlling who gets to breed. Because the main thrust of degeneracy was psychological, or maybe more accurately, moral, control over so-called deviance was the major focus. Eugenic theory was influential in British medicine and politics and contributed to the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913. The act allowed the incarceration of those deemed mentally deficient or feeble-minded, largely to keep them from spreading their immorality and breeding. However, with morals so wrapped up in what it meant to be deficient, in practice, the act simply acted as a way to segregate working-class people who transgressed against gender roles. 
with women becoming dangerous spreaders of immorality, those seen as sexually promiscuous, or simply the possibility of becoming so, were more likely to be locked up under this law than those with physical or mental impairments. Eugenics theories also influenced theories around addiction and alcoholism. The 1909 text, Drugs and the Drug Habit, emphasized the importance of good racial stock, along with increased education and welfare, to prevent the spread of addiction. Increasingly, specialists and policymakers talked of the compulsory commitment of habitual drug and alcohol users, largely focusing on working-class modes of use like public drinking. The rise of the trope that individual women were corruptors within a community affected drug legislation as well. There's probably no time in which young men are more precious to society than during wartime, when, after all, the fate of the nation may depend on them. During the First World War, the physical and moral health of soldiers came under the spotlight. Scares began to surface in the press of women, especially prostitutes, either corrupting men with cocaine or using the drug to knock them out. Um, while the British public had heard of cocaine, they clearly did not yet appreciate the uh, stimulating effects of the drug. Reports and rumours of Canadian soldiers also spreading the drug's use added that fear of foreigners component and gave birth to a full-blown modern drug scare. By the summer of 1916, Umpire newspaper was running with the headings, quote, Vicious drug powder, cocaine driving hundreds mad, women and aliens prey on soldiers. Quote. A physician and British eugenicist founding father, Caleb Salibi, warned that hundreds of soldiers would be driven mad unless cocaine trafficking was stopped. Now, behind all this, there was a very real uptick in cocaine use, which did concern the authorities. However, the laws on the books were more for regulating pharmacists than locking up dealers, which obviously frustrated police attempts to get convictions. A Home Office Undersecretary, Sir Malcolm Delavin, suggested they add legislation to criminalise the possession of cocaine, opium and morphine to the Defence of the Realm Act, um, which was a uh, wartime ruling analogous to the US Patriot Act in suddenly granting the government far-reaching and ever-expanding power. The idea of jail time for those possessing cocaine was very enticing to the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. He felt it would better allow them to combat groups he associated with the drug. Thieves, prostitutes, pimps, homosexuals, and quote-unquote other nefarious persons. However, the commissioner was less enthusiastic with the inclusion of opium, which he described as a more or less beneficent drug. The police and army also wanted to leave out morphine, as did the pharmaceutical interests. At the time, Britain dominated the world's morphine industry. In the end, opium was left on and morphine was taken out. Uh, a good reminder that it's not always the supposed danger of the drug that influences what becomes criminalised and what doesn't.
Regardless, in July 1916, for the first time in British history, the possession of a drug had become a criminal offence. Writer Maracone would describe the event as the drug underground going through its, quote, decisive rite of passage. In the post-war period, cocaine and opiates use spread through London's nocturnal West End habitat. Reports of drug use and overdoses among several young women, largely actresses, chorus girls, nightclub girls and prostitutes, sparked a media frenzy. However, as we discussed last episode, drug scares often have less to do with the drugs themselves, and instead act as manifestations for societal anxieties. Here, just as in the last episode, the main themes surrounded the status of women and racial mixing. The First World War upturned the societal role of women, as mass mobilization into the armed forces sucked men from civilian jobs, women filled the vacuum. With greater economic freedom, women became more visible in an era where previously women in public had been associated with prostitution. There was a push for women to gain full citizenship. Their newfound autonomy was at the forefront of the nation's mind. Yet, the eroticism of the female subjects in these drug scares, uh, chorus girls and actresses, etc., Focus this anxiety into the long-standing fear of unleashing female sexuality. The related fear over racial mixing stemmed from opium's presence in sensational stories covering white women and Chinese men mixing. The drug was seen as breaking down racial barriers, just as cannabis would be in the 1950s. And it should surprise none of you that a society so deeply concerned with racial degeneration found this severely troubling. The public outcry and implicit calls for drug control acted as a sort of proxy demand to control women, especially their sexuality, to put the genie that the war unleashed back in the bottle. The Home Office were all too happy to oblige. The Drugs Branch was created, headed by Malcolm Delavin, and in 1920 regulation expanded over medicinal opium and morphine. Throughout the early 20s, the Home Office continued to move the UK toward a penal drug policy. Now, it might surprise you at this stage that by the 1950s, Britain would end up with the liberal policy I described in the introduction. Well, all this regulation started stepping on the toes of the pharmaceutical and medical profession. They chafed under the hoops they needed to jump through to obtain and prescribe dangerous drugs. And, as many of the addicts were doctors themselves, penal policy was aimed at addicts and overly prescribing doctors alike. And this isn't to mention that criminalization flew in the face of the disease view of addiction. Just like in 1955, doctors launched grassroots opposition to maintain their control over these drugs. For four years, a power struggle between this sector of the medical profession and the Home Office 
kept the subject in flux. Central to all this was the medical treatment of giving opioid addicts maintenance doses of opiates. The Home Office was hoping to end illicit drug use and addiction by damning the supply. Doctors prescribing these drugs to addicts was a pretty big leak. In 1923, Delavin asked the Ministry of Health to put together a committee to resolve the issue. He stated his hopes were that we want an authoritative statement we could use in dealing with practitioners, and to which we could refer the courts, that regular prescription of the drugs on the grounds that without them the patient will suffer or even collapse is not legitimate and cannot be recognised as medical practice. However, Delavan approaching the Ministry of Health for this does show that he and the Home Office were looking for some genuine medical advice. The resulting committee, the Rollinston Committee, would be made up of nine addiction specialists. While there was a variety of different opinions about how to regulate opioids, they all held on to the disease model of addiction. A contingent also held firm anti-prohibitionist morals. They looked at the Harrison Act in the USA, which criminalized heroin use, as backwards. One committee member commented that, quote, the law takes into no account the causes of addiction. The drugger is regarded as a criminal, just as the insane were in medieval times. Many of them still held the same dogmatic view of what an addict looked like. The thinking was very much about the middle-class older addict, which doctors treated. In the end, the committee would point out that there were really very few addicts in the UK. Addiction was to be seen as a medical condition rather than a vice, and as such, maintenance doses to allow addicts to continue to live a comfortable life were ruled as legitimate. The resulting policy, which would last until the 60s, is regarded as one of the beginnings of the harm reduction concept. However, the anti-prohibitionist morals of uh, a few prominent doctors probably doesn't fully explain why Britain diverted so drastically from what was, at this point, an international trend towards criminalization. That these doctors still saw addiction as a middle class and maybe even feminized affliction is likely significant. In the United States, addict populations shifting from being middle class female and medical to lower class male and non-medical would coincide with the ever-growing criminal policies. Um, probably will surprise none of you that there's much more support for locking up junkies than respectable older women. This change didn't happen in the UK. Addicts, well, at least the ones that the committee thought of and doctors examined, were the middle-class provincial patients that doctors treated and most likely first prescribed the drugs that these people got addicted to. Big picture-wise, Britain's welfare's policy of registering and monitoring addicts better fit usual methods of controlling middle-class women than sending them to prison. Psychiatric theory about addiction, on the other hand, would follow their American counterparts' lead. I believe I believe I'll go back home 
By the 1920s, ideas about degeneration and nervous disorders were a bit old hat. They would decline as new explanations for addiction battled to hold pathological domain over the addict. These increasingly focused on the addict's psychology. Some psychoanalytical theories, for example, saw heavy drug and alcohol use as a refuge from repressed homosexuality. Along this line of thinking, addiction and alcoholism were essentially symptoms of latent homosexuality. Interestingly, this would reflect a cultural suspicion of men using these substances, which were still feminized and so deviated from the masculine ideal. The Home Office's medical specialist and uh, Malcolm Delavan would make public statements linking drug addiction with quote-unquote unnatural sexual vice and asserted their cross-recruitment with quote-unquote perverts. However, in the US, the mainstream psychiatric opinion of addiction that would win out was the psychopath diagnosis, the so-called waste basket of psychiatry. The psychopathic diagnosis was on the rise in the 1920s because when the US started giving the people they incarcerated for feeble-mindedness IQ tests, well, surprise, surprise, they found them to be relatively normal. A new diagnosis was needed to cover the habitually delinquent and morally deficient, which didn't imply inferior intelligence. Psychopaths better fit the pathologized rogues gallery of hypersexual women and prostitutes, unemployed men and habitual criminals, sexual deviants and now drug addicts. According to this line of thinking, the psychologically normal addicts they were the anomalies. The true addicts were the morally bankrupt and psychologically defective. In the UK, psychiatrists and eugenicists were similarly frustrated by the limitations of the Mental Deficiency Acts, which revolved around this feeble-minded diagnosis. In 1932, the popular psychologist and eugenicist Cyril Burt was disappointed to find that only 12% of London's prostitutes were certifiable under the Mental Deficiency Act although he did proclaim that four-fifths of them were quote-unquote subnormal. It's these eugenicists who would contribute the final turn in our tale. Eugenics had grown in popularity and ideologically in the interwar period. The First World War inflamed Victorian fears about imperial decline. In this environment, eugenics reached a new height of popularity. The application of biological sciences continued to be more macro. By this period, even the rise and fall of nations could be expressed through biological terms, by scientists and non-scientists alike. As Dr. Charles Bond explained at a 1928 UCL lecture, as civilizations grew in complexity, their wealthy elites diminished while the masses reproduced, quote, 
like the parasitic cancer cells, end quote. All this medical language was meant to reinforce Bond's assertion that biological factors were, quote, the chief source of the decline of past civilization and earlier races, end quote. Now, eugenicists always had a grandiose belief in their need. In 1909, that founding father of the British eugenics movement, Caleb Salibi, would announce that, quote, eugenics is going to save the world, end quote. The interwar pessimism and fear of decline seemed to increase its believers and the urgency for its cause. Its ranks boasted a number of prominent public figures like economist Maynard Keynes and sexologist Havelock Ellis, celebrity scientist Julian Huxley and playwright George Bernard Shaw. In the 1930s, the eugenicists would leverage their popularity among the progressive elite to launch a campaign to legalize sterilization. Now, this was to be voluntary, of course. Well, apart from those who were deemed unfit to make up their own mind. However, while eugenics was popular amongst the educated progressive types, it was very unpopular with the Catholics and Labour Party, and so failed. By the end of the 30s, the eugenicists were getting worried. They felt the UK was in danger of falling behind. You know, the USA's been sterilizing their degenerates for years now, and, well, Germany, they've just enacted some very robust policies for pruning their racial stock. Although, to be fair to many eugenicists, they thought the Germans may have gone a bit too far. Drug addicts, as it turned out, would offer a late opportunity to sneak some legislation in. Over the years, there had been a, a good deal of cross-pollinization between psychiatry and eugenic theory. The 1936 edition of A Textbook of Psychiatry for Students and Practitioners included a couple pages on how to best investigate the quality of a patient and their potential partner's breeding stock. The textbook moved on to the subject of birth control and segregation. While it applauded the segregation of the mentally incapacitated, it warned, While it is an easy enough matter to segregate those who show obvious defects, it is very difficult to obtain control of those who suffer from a moral rather than an intellectual defect. It is the so-called moral imbeciles, or degenerates, or psychopaths, who do more damage in the community than any other types. The textbook then went on to discuss the pros and cons of sterilization. In 1938, one of the textbook's authors, R.D. Gillespie, was requested to join the Royal College of Physicians Committee on Drug Addiction. Some prominent doctors were unhappy with the recommendations of the Rolleston Committee. Far from being the pride of UK drug policy, many drug specialists found the policy of maintenance doses troubling, especially with young addicts. This committee was set up to revise the policy. The committee was made up of members of the 1930s medical elite with a strong psychiatric presence. Most of the members were also eugenicists. The meeting was opened by the royal physician, Bertrand Dawson, who rose to celebrity in 1928 for saving the king's life. 
and to infamy in 1936 for euthanizing the king with a speedball, a mixture of heroin and cocaine to the royal jugular. Dawson opened the tone of the committee when he announced, quote, The duty of the medical profession is to demonstrate, in a practical manner, how medical science could contribute to the solution of social problems which were sometimes considered to be outside its scope. Dawson explained that lawbreakers usually had, quote, one foot in crime and one foot in pathology, unquote. Dawson wanted the committee to focus on the larger problem of deviance rather than confine themselves to drug addicts. Britain, after all, was falling behind in eugenics policy, and the committee was handed a great opportunity to rectify that. They could use the historically uncontroversial suggestion of compulsory detention of addicts as the thin end of a wedge for detaining all of Britain's psychopaths, including alcoholics and sexual deviants. In essence, he wished to use drug addicts as a backdoor to enforce the segregation of psychopaths. Most of the committee's members enthusiastically embraced this new, larger eugenics quest. However, the eugenicists ran into two major hurdles. One was a minority faction within the committee, which formed around Russell Brain, who would later become one of the most important figures in British drug policy. Brain was also a eugenicist, but displayed less zeal, or maybe even energy, for embarking on this grand crusade. Pragmatically, he pointed out that it was going to be very hard to define exactly who was and was not a psychopath. Instead, he said they should just focus on the problem in front of them, the small, well-defined condition of drug addiction. The second problem was from the Home Office. In order to find out how best to proceed, the committee talked to the head of the drugs branch and the Home Office's lawyer. Um, these bureaucrats, they'd find out, didn't share the medical professional's imagination, which would be a consistent problem for the eugenicists. The head of the drug branch, Major Coles, was more interested in implementing methods for prosecuting the doctors who supplied the addicts. The lawyer described the task of legally defining the psychopathic as baffling. He also found the committee's plans of incarcerating a large proportion of the population as unrealistic. Other reports from the Home Office pointed out the British public would never tolerate the compulsory detention of alcoholics. So, after these roadblocks, why not scale back? Take Brain's pragmatic approach and just focus on the compulsory detention of addicts. Well, the problem for some in the Grand Eugenics camp is that they're not very good at curing addiction. They're worried that the inevitable failure of curing addicts with compulsory detention would weaken their case for segregating homosexuals, habitual thieves, promiscuous women, and the rest of the eugenicist wish list. If this was going to happen, it had to happen in one fell swoop. So, in the end, nothing happened. There's um, an arbitrary nature to history. As drug historian Christopher Hallam pointed out, given the Home Office's historical preference towards incarceration, had the committee been less ambitious, Britain might have ended up with a sort of 
medico-penal drug policy instead of the liberal British system. On the other hand, it was the um, eugenicist ambition that would make locking up these drug addicts so important. But in general, this arbitrarity is endemic in drug history, where drugs and their users are a sort of bubble on the tide of greater cultural forces, like fears over the status and activities of women, concerns over racial purity and national health, and, of course, the attempt to construct a biological view of the world. The addict, as a self-contained type of person, was born out of a period swept up in the post-Darwinist attempt to explain the world through a biological lens. However, despite the scientific trappings and objective pretense, the addict was still a product of moral deviance, a flawed type of person, perhaps with an overstressed nervous system or degenerated mind or psychopathic personality. The medicalization of society pathologized those deemed abnormal and, in the process, codified normality. As philosopher Sadie Plant wrote, quote, By the turn of the century, using drugs was something only addicts were supposed to do, just as gay sex was confined to homosexuals. Occasional flirtations with life beyond the straight lines of normality were no longer legitimate options, end quote. As with homosexuals and women who didn't play their societal role properly, the story of the addict in this period isn't unique, but the story of how society decided to treat those who were now scientifically deemed subnormal, eventually leading to the position we saw in the introduction in the 1950s, where even having a child outside of marriage could land you in the psychopathic category. And historian Susan Ziegler has argued that this eugenic influence on addiction theory has had a serious effect on the cultural perceptions of addicts. Drug addicts would increasingly be seen as a dangerous vector within society, not just to themselves, and calls for their segregation would become stronger. While the Rollinston Committee may have bucked this trend, it's important to note that the addicts examined were almost entirely middle or upper class, sections of the population which were usually excluded from eugenic policy and degeneration theory. However, once this demographic would change in the 1960s, the UK would quickly move towards detention and criminalization. Of course, this class divide in how we treat addicts still exists today. As is often the case in drug issues, the divide can be seen most clearly in the US. The middle-class medical addict tends to be treated far more sympathetically in the courts than the more impoverished users who must turn to street drugs to maintain their habits. And rich addicts still can get access to maintenance doses through fabulously expensive rehab clinics. Those arrested for possession of street drugs, on the other hand, only have going cold turkey and a high chance of overdose upon release to look forward to. If it keeps on raining, going to break. If it keeps on raining, going to break.
to break And the water gonna come and have no place to stay Well, all that night I sat on the lever and moan Well, all that night I sat on the lever and moan Thinking about my baby and my happy home For my sources and an annotated script of this episode, please visit the Hooked on History website at hookedonhistory.co.uk. And if you can spare the time, please leave a rating on whatever app you listen to this episode on. Any donations would be hugely appreciated. You can donate on the website at hookedonhistory.co.uk or on patreon.com forward slash hookedonhistory. If you have any questions or wish to contact me, feel free to do so at hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at history underscore hooked. I'd like to thank Luke Ewer for lending his voice for some of the quotes and his continual upkeep of the Hooked on History website. The music in order of appearance was Western Theme by my brother Nick Brown. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, recorded in 1913 by the London Symphony Orchestra. I'm Gonna Get Me a Man, That's All, by Virginia Liston, recorded in 1926. Sissy Man Blues by Coco Mo Arnold, recorded in 1935. And When the Levee Breaks by Kansas Joe McCoy and Memphis Minnie, recorded in 1929. Baby